Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host Denise Messenger for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Preserve and protect your health by listening live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Today is August 14th, 2013. We're going to have a great program today. Did you know that ADHD, which is Attention Deficit Disorder, is something that your child does rather than something he or she has? It's a pattern of a behavior, not a medical condition. This is a direct quote from Dr. Craig Weiner's book, Parenting Your Child with ADHD, a no-nonsense guide for nurturing, self-reliance, and cooperation. We have to ask ourselves, are there really ways to ease a child with ADHD into a more mature behavior? What if you could get a child to behave without using medication, pressure, or supervision constantly? We are now going to find out. I know and want to now introduce to our listeners Dr. Craig Weiner. Hello there. Welcome to our show. Hello. Hi. How are you? We're great. I want to uh, give the listeners your credentials. He is a licensed psychologist based in Westchester, Massachusetts, where he specializes in the treatment of children, adolescents, and families. He obtained his doctorate degree from the Clark University in 1979, and he's a member of the American Psychological Association and the Massachusetts Psychological Association. In addition to over 30 years of private practice, he's an assistant professor in the Department of Family Medicine and Community Health at the University of Massachusetts Medical School and a clinical director of mental health services at Family Health Center of Worcester, where he supervises a large staff of clinicians. I don't know how you found the time to write a book, but you did. In fact, you've written several books. So, to start our show, I think we'd all love to hear how you got onto your path of becoming a psychologist and your interest in ADHD. Well, uh, my father's a psychologist, so I kind of got uh, used to it from uh, growing up, so it was something very familiar to me. And when I first started out uh, practicing, they had, uh, back in those days, it was called uh, minimal brain dysfunction but they had the notion of uh, hyperactive kids for, for a long time already now. It's uh, And I I got concerned because all the, the kids get treated like um, it's some kind of a, um, it's a medical body delay um, of an inability of the child to control themselves and to manage themselves. And I noticed very easy, very quickly that these kids were doing the behaviors at particular times and they got particular outcomes when they did the behaviors. So I, I began to see the behaviors as, as behaviors that get reinforced as the child operates in the world. So while the children start out perhaps more active than others or having more trouble than other kids and they're difficult to socialize, they learn to, to do the behaviors we call ADHD under very specific kinds of situations and conditions. And so I try to help parents and uh 
other adults who work with the youngsters to recognize that they can help change when the kid does these behaviors by altering what happens when the behaviors occur and by helping the child learn to self-manage rather than be reliant on others to direct them and remind them about all the responsibilities that essentially they're avoiding. Interesting. So then, is that pretty much your definition of ADHD, or does it go a step further than that? So the definition of ADHD is in the, is written in the diagnostic manual, so it's a list of behaviors, and they break, they're called impulsive behaviors, hyperactive behaviors, and inattentive behaviors, but I call them, uh, uh, they're, they're either intrusive, the child's being intrusive, so you want the child to wait their turn and defer to others, and they're not, or they're not participating, they're non-participatory behaviors in the sense that you want the child to be involved with what we're doing and the child's disengaged. Now, impulsive behaviors really just break down break down into the child's doing something that so we don't like that they're doing, that they're angry or they're doing something. It's, a, it's the outcome of the behavior is socially unacceptable. We call it impulsive, but it's... Uh, it's uh, blurting out or a whole number of others, knocking people over. But these are behaviors that go with uh, uh, either getting, uh, antagonizing other people or being angry. And there's just other ways to label the behaviors so it doesn't sound like they're just medical delays. They're, they're social behaviors that have certain social consequences that get reinforced by the by the responses of others when they occur. Is there a specific age that this this uh, starts? Well, it used to be seven. Now it's reduced to age four by the new diagnostic manual. So, very very little young kids are going to get labeled this way, and being they're going to be told that they have a medical delay, and the delay of a lesser ability to control themselves. And this leads the whole population to think that they have to do a particular intervention to save the children from themselves because they're deficient. And it, and I, I'm very concerned with uh, then the child, how they, what the child uh, assumes about themselves, and and then get reliant on all this extra help rather than learn to self-manage and learn to be self-reliant like other kids. So there's a real problem with how you see the behaviors and what 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 treatments we even recommend uh, for the child. And my recommendations really run differently than. A lot of the extra other people who presume that these are defective behaviors. How does it differ? I I presume the behaviors get reinforced. They're not defective. So if a child, some children are more active than others and more difficult to socialize. But if a child's a child, if the parent's on the phone, and the child's hyperactive, the consequence is the parent gets off the phone. And if the the kid isn't hyperactive, if the if it's late at night and the and if they're quiet, the parent wouldn't notice they're up and they're on the phone. The kid's quiet, so uh, they're only hyperactive under certain conditions. So I, I say, what, when are they hyperactive? When are they not hyperactive? When are they attentive? When are they focused? When are they not focused? And for me, mm-hmm. the, the lack of the the, the, the inattentive behaviors occur is a, a, really a variation of avoidance responses, which is it, it, they occur when you're imposing an agenda on the child that's associated with failure, restriction, evaluation, disapproval. These youngsters aren't doing inattentive behaviors when they're doing something they initiate and enjoy. Hmm. For for obtaining a di- um a diagnosis for ADHD, is there a metric system or or some way where where if uh, the physician says, "Well, your child has ADHD, but it's it's a uh, very low." Is there a low yes. or high? Um, Yes, yeah, they have a they have a, a a a sheet that essentially lists the symptoms and the parent grades whether the child does it often or very often or infrequently, and you you can end up with a score, and if the score is high enough, it puts you in the upper regions of doing these behaviors with much more often than other kids the same age, and therefore you get the label. And you notice the label is always just a statement of a behavior, of how often you do behaviors. It's not, mm-hmm. It just means, you, and the explanation of why you do those behaviors—that's what's being debated. It's not that kids don't do those behaviors; they do the behaviors. But how do you how do you explain it or account for it? That's the problem. So, is this a skill set that parents need to learn 
relative to how they discipline these hyperactive children? I think so. I think that some kids are easy to socialize, and some kids are more anxious than others. Some kids are more um, curious. Some kids are more active. Some kids are more insistent, assertive. We all differ in in, in ways. As parents know, if you, you have a lot of kids in your family, you know each kid is often very different and has a different set of problems. So mm-hmm. if you do the same parenting with all kids, it may not get the same results. It's not. This isn't a... Parents don't cause ADHD, but parents can participate in ways to stop reinforcing ADHD, and parents can help children that are difficult to socialize learn to self-manage and cooperate. Some kids are easy to cooperate because they're very easily intimidated. Some They may go to therapy therapists later on because they're under-assertive. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, all these kids present different problems for parents. So the, in no way is, a, is the notion that ADHD behaviors... Um, can get reinforced, does it, does it say that parents are causing ADHD? So when a child is diagnosed, are they typically put on medication or or other forms of uh, of dealing with them? Well, more and more now, that's the, becoming the norm because once primary care physicians and pediatricians feel more comfortable using uh, antidepressants or garden variety ADHD drugs, that becomes uh, e- more easily acquired for people. And to the extent mm. the population starts to buy into the model that these are a medical delay, people are, are more ready to accept the notion of uh, treat it with uh, a medical treatment. So the no- I, my first book was called ADHD, A Return to Psychology. I was trying to make a case that these behaviors can be reinstated into the realm of psychology because it's being all in many ways mental health in general is drifting away from psychology it's all becoming uh disorders it's um mm-hmm. it's it's part of our day and age of the more med- medic- me- medications they develop and the more these diagnostic manuals expand the number of diagnoses a person can have we all start to see ourselves in the terms that are being put forth by these books, it's 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 mm-hmm. one way to understand the world. It's not it's not the only way to understand the world, but this is the way in which we're all being encouraged and shaped to understand each other. Well, you know, everybody has very busy lives, and I would imagine that putting a child on medication is perhaps an easy fix. It's not going to take as much work as it would to actually have to work with them on changing their behaviors. Am I am I going in the right direction with that thought? Well, I think, yeah, let's talk about that a lot because that's a real important issue. Um, it, medications, uh, in some ways, are easier, and they work pretty quickly. And in the short term, they often have profound effects because if you put somebody on a stimulant, no matter who they are, like college kids are taking stimulant drugs now, too, because to help them study in exams. Because you just take really? it and it hasn't, yeah, mm-hmm. there's a there's an 80% uh, usage of, of ADHD drugs by kids in college fraternities and sororities. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So they used to take no-dos, and now them? they take ADHD. Now Where they are they getting ADHD the drugs? They, kids who have scripts will sell them, and it's easy to get a script because people know how to go to a doctor and, and report the symptoms. And... Uh, Wow. They, people know how to. It's, it's, they do studies that say if you're if you're a healthy person, you you you. They had a they had this famous study where psychologists went in and they went to a mental in, into hospital and they got themselves admitted. They couldn't get out. They couldn't get labeled as not mentally dif- impaired once they got in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's it, it, there's a lottery. The people are taking drugs in general for lots of things now because there's more drugs. The mm-hmm. drugs are developing, so they they have, and the people who want to have a solution to the th- things they're struggling with. And the problem with the medications is that uh, you don't know the longer term side effects. And um, most of the time, if if parents put the youngster on the meds, it takes away some of the the problems enough so that the urgency of the issue goes away, and they don't really get into the therapy, which is going to appointments, you know, in the winter time, mm-hmm. and it's, and they have to learn. 
all these subtle things about their patterns with each other, and it is hard. And but they're finding out that the long-term results of being on the meds aren't really very good. Johns Hopkins just came out with a study that said that after six years, they followed kids for six years, and the kids who were on ADHD meds had the same ADHD symptoms as the kids who were never treated. And they just came out with another study that said that the grades, kids' ADHD does not help with grades. So then people say, well, put them on drugs and do therapy, but people don't do the therapy and the drugs. They do the drugs and then they don't do the therapy. Or the therapy mm. that they do is not great therapy because it's, it's, you have to, it's any time you raise a child with the notion that you have to control the child, it's not clear whether you're really helping the child socialize in a way that they're going to be successful. If it's much like institutionalizing a person. You you get results as long as the parent's there to to coerce. But if the parent's not there, the kid doesn't learn it. But so, but all the ADHD interventions are based on uh, uh, reward charts and punishments, and those are just ways to control somebody. And they're not going to help the youngster learn to develop a relationship with people or learn to operate independently. Have there been studies? where you've had two different groups, one group where you're doing the behavioral modification, counseling, et cetera, and then another group that's just strictly on the medication and outcomes? Or or have you seen this in your practice? See, these are great questions because the problem is uh, when they compare... What I'm, saying, what I'm suggesting is that the, the, when they compare therapy to drugs, for example... You, mm-hmm. What are you going to do? You, how many people dropped out of the drug trials, and do they count them as failures? How many appointments did the people even go to 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 do the therapy? What kind of therapy did they do? Mm. Doing the therapy, you know, they do studies about one third of the therapists help people, one third do nothing, and one third cause harm. So you get a, a net <laughs> gain of nothing because th- doing mm-hmm. therapy is you're limited by the skills of the therapist. Mm-hmm. At least the drug has a constant value to it. You know, it's the same drug. Everybody takes the same drug. We, one therapist to the next, they differ in extreme ways. And one therapist can help one person, and the same therapist may help help the next person. So the therapy is a very difficult activity to do mm. or to get results from. Well, and and everybody pretty much reacts differently to to, say, the same drug. Exactly. So therefore, with these children, one drug may not work, and then they have to result to another drug. How many drugs are there out there for ADHD? There's lots and lots. Every year they're coming out with more and more. There are variations of the theme. And some drugs do create more side effects for one kid, but then another variation won't. And one dose doesn't do anything, and you raise the dose, it does, and then you raise the dose too much to get side effects and then what happens when the child's body gets used to it or the child's body changes then you have to change the dose it you know if you yeah, think yeah. go ahead it, it concerns me in terms of the um you know i mean children are in growth patterns and their hormones are all all forming what these drugs do in the long term i'm very curious that's that's my concern as well because uh, and then what do you do to assess the problem? For example, mm-hmm. uh, like what's the consequence of the eating problems that occur as a result of being on uh, ADHD drugs? Because um, there's now a thing about uh, ADHD group has got more obesity than other groups. So then the question mm-hmm. is, uh, do they factor? I don't know the, I don't know all the correlates, but I, in my practice, I watch the kids' eating patterns get changed because they're not hungry on the meds, and then the parents have to start forcing food. So your, mm. your relationship to food changes and what you eat and how you eat and how... And then you... I don't know what happens to your metabolism and whether you... And if you're on a drug for one year, is it different than if you're on for five years? You know, because you your really, body may be... Yeah. What's that? Yeah. And you you really wonder about their nutrition, nutrition overall. For instance, children that consume a lot of sugar they end up extremely hyperactive. Are these ADH children that are on medication consuming sugar on top of the medications? And so if so, some may, 
some may be doing that, but the, that whole sugar group is a um, who who gets hooked on lots of sugar is another question too. Like how people mm-hmm. learn that sugar somehow becomes a um, a way to self-soothe or uh, get some effect because they 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 that that's another, then the loss of energy after you get an initial rush from it. Apparently, if you high sugar, then you get a downer too. So you mm-hmm. get some unstable mood from uh, eating like that. If a parent wants to take their child off the medication, how long does it take to bring them back to what we might consider normalcy um, from a health point of view, not psychologically, because obviously psychologically they're going to be having a lot of uh, counseling. So that's something that is not really in my expertise. That uh, whether the, I, I, I know that the brain, when you put extra dopamine into the brain, the, the brain is changed by these drugs so that it can utilize more dopamine, and therefore mm-hmm. the brain has to deal with getting the dopamine out. So it, it builds these um, responses that manage to get the extra dopamine out because it's saying I'm being flooded with dopamine. So then you've got all these compensatory brain responses to having the drug, and then if you take the drug away, now your brain's got all these things built up to get rid of dopamine, so you're going to have a big response there. How long does it take for those compensations to get out of the body? And is everybody Mm -hmm. different? Do some people respond easier than others, and some people have no no problem, some people may may have a bigger problem? Like, I don't know what it's mm-hmm. like. It gives people on Prozac, for example, for 20 years now, I don't know what it would be like to take them off the Prozac. They must, mm-hmm. their, their bodies must be uh, acclimated to it now. Mm. So let's talk about reinforcing um, the benefits of intervention in a, in a positive way without medication because okay. your your book pretty much um, advocates this and I think the listeners would like to learn from you especially as a parent of an ADHD child or children where do they start and what do they do? Okay. So the the whole principle is that if the child does not do ADHD when they're interested in what's going on then the whole mm-hmm. idea is how do you socialize a youngster to to feel interested in doing what other people value and expect? So they're interested in their own hobbies and their own activities, and they associate the parent and the parent's directives and the parent's requirements and expectations with something that's aversive or uncomfortable or restrictive or difficult, so how do you socialize mm-hmm. a child to enjoy the notion of having a relationship with the parent, doing helping, sharing? How do those behaviors get patterned so that they're seen as positive? And I take the view that we're all, that for the most part, we're interested in having relationships and being connected with each other. And it's nice. These kids like to have friends, and they like to have people like them. So the notion mm-hmm. of having intimacy is important. And so you want to see the, the value and the positive possibilities to if you do these things, nice things can happen. It's not to, cha- to train a child out of fear that if you don't do this, I'm going to do this to you. Yes, you can get the child to do it, but only for the moment just to get you to back off. And it's not making the activity any more pleasurable. It's like forcing a child to eat, eat the vegetables. I don't know if you're getting the kid to learn to enjoy vegetables or, or eat healthy. You're just, they're dissociating it with coercion. They're almost getting worse about it and they can't wait to get away mm-hmm. so there's all That's the dangers true. of so all the ways in which we typically socialize kids have some side effects so anxiety and avoidance behaviors get trained so i wrote a book that says what can you do as a parent to get the child to want to buy into being part of the group buy into sharing buy into self-managing because a lot of kids don't want to are afraid to learn to self-manage because it means the parent won't be worried about them and doing it for them. And they, they associate the parent caring about them that the parent worries about whether their teeth are brushed or whether they did their homework. And you know, in some ways, it's a reinforcement to stay dependent. 
And the other thing is mm-hmm. that you avoid failing if you don't try. These are a group of kids that are avoiding failure because they they just they're afraid to get criticism or, or something. And then the what happens is that if the parent just gets them to start bribing them or punishing them, the child's only learning to do it under the conditions of the parents controlling. And I'm trying to help parents say, well, how can they get this, the child to see the value of being a, a serious student? Uh, that that's, that's a very privileged status. It's not a, it's not enslavement. It's a privileged status to be a student. Or to know things is a wonderful thing to to, to get social importance by you know knowing things. So there's ways you can talk with the child so that you're impressed by what they can do, and that trains them to to do very different kinds of behaviors all the time. Uh, they can get attention based on their competency rather than the being being loud and obnoxious and intrusive. That's not the way to have attention. But that's the way these kids end up getting attention. So can you give us an example of what a parent would say to a child that's misbehaving? So, okay, so the first problem is that this is shaping a relationship over time. So that mm-hmm. there's, there's no one thing to do that will get a magic result because you're changing the way you relate to each other. So mm-hmm. if the example is um, we're going to go to an antique store, and if in the past we've gone to an antique store, the youngster doesn't want to be there, they're going to act foolishly because they're going to want, get the, want to get the parent to get out of the store. Mm-hmm. So before you go to the store, you say, we will go in this antique store. We know it's something that uh, you, you you may not find things interesting as in the past you haven't. Would you like to bring along something you can read or play with while we're doing this? Or is there some is there uh, there's something at the store we could talk with you about, but when we're busy talking to this, the other person about these other things, what do you think you want to do with yourself so that you're uh, comfortable? And so the youngster likes the idea that we thought of them, we just didn't tell them shut up and mm-hmm. wait, and that there's a notion of the, that you're, the, the child learns that they can make the best of a situation that may not be what they would pick, because we often mm-hmm. make the best out of life. But the, then the parent, the, if the, then the other issue is if the, if the child acts out, then you have to leave the store and say, well, we didn't get to finish our business, now we're going to have to go back, and I'll the problem is going to be if we have to hire a babysitter, we have to hire a babysitter, then we'll have less money to do other things with. But in some ways, if we if we cooperate and we let us finish our business, we don't we're going to go back once. We're not going to have to go back twice. So the juncture just learns there's an advantage to cooperating because you don't have to go back again. Whether we could save so our money age, for other things. What age uh, would you be um, telling the child these things? So. As early as you can, you try to see if you can get the child to recognize uh, alternatives. And mm-hmm. it's, it's another thing of instead of saying to the child, I think you, you just do it. It depends on the kids. Some kids at four are very verbal, and you can do lots of things with them that you can't do with other kids at four. So you have mm-hmm. to just gauge your child. But if you think your child can respond, you, you say uh, most kids can learn to bring a toy with them if they to play with quietly in the corner what if you what if you play with this puzzle while we do this and, and then you can show us the puzzle after uh maybe you can help us pick out what we're looking for and, and do it with us so the child is not excluded and like on a shopping trip you can have them help help pick the things out or get them in, get them involved in what do we get next or how do we do this the whole, the whole idea is to get whatever age your child is, how can you get them to to have some fun with what we're doing or to see that they have a value, that they're participating, that they're contributing. I say, gee, thanks for reminding me about that. Oh, you told me this. That's great. I, I love it. What do we do next? Which aisle are we going to after? So you're, you're including your child. It's not the, not the child doesn't have a sense of powerlessness, which was then they start acting out because they want to get out of it because they have no value in the activity. They're not, they're not participating. Look at how different it is when you're included versus you're excluded mm-hmm. and how you behave. You know, when you're in a party or a group. Of, huh? Something just came came to mind. Uh, okay. In, with, our, with our technology and uh, cell phones, mm-hmm. you know, when I'm out and about, I see parents talking on their cell phones when they have their children with them. And so... 
I can see how difficult it must be for, for kids to get their parents' attention now because the cell phones are going off all the time. Of course, some of the children have cell phones also. But if you're a parent of an ADHD child, you're going to have to make some modifications on that one um, because really what I hear you saying is this child needs to know that they have your full attention and that they're they have value and that you you have you may have to try to teach them that they can live in the world without getting your full attention and that's a slow process mm. that was what you were, point you were raising before what can you do to help change these these are kids that are often monopolizing everything that goes on in the classroom and the family oh, okay. life they're monopolizing so you want to get them to learn that Nothing will happen to them if they're not the center of attention. They're either the center of mm-hmm. attention or they're completely non-participatory. They're, they're off to the side when the family's together. Or they're disrupting what the family's doing as a way to, to uh, deal with the, the insecurity of, not, of either not being included or that it's not involving mm-hmm. them. You know, it's, well, it's, I, was cu- I, was coming, I was coming from the point of view that um, when you were talking about how a parent needs to tell the child prior to an outing, of what they they're going to um, anticipate happening, correct? That might be that helpful that, in some that, cases. Yeah, sure. That then the um, the child knows that they're they're valued because you're you're telling them basically, correct? Yes. Okay. Yep. Those are. Th- you had asked yeah. um, what can parents start to do, and it's uh, acknowledging the child's point of view, because you want the child to copy right. that and acknowledge your point of view. You're teaching them to mm-hmm. coordinate with you. These are kids who aren't coordinating according to their, in, in ways that are similar to other kids of their age. So when they go to school, they're and the teacher is dealing with the whole group. They're out of the group. They're not dealing with learning group behavior. They're not learning to coordinate so their actions with others. What's that? How does a parent help help their child adjust to school? So I was I was kind of talking about that in the book where uh, there's a lot of things you can do with your child before they're ready to go to school that prepares them for school. And one of them is um, how do you make family life so that the child is part of a family group and learns to participate in talking uh, that's more than just two people talking, to learn to share in a discussion that has more than two people. Because they have in in school, they have to learn to be part of a group. Mm-hmm. And a lot of kids in today's day and age, we're losing the notion of family. Years and years ago, kids used to play more games in groups. For example, jump rope and hopscotch, and they they had the, the the activities were were more required for social interactions. And it's not clear now whether we're getting kids to practice in the same way. We don't even eat supper together anymore. And like you had mentioned, they we're all on cell phones and in front of screens. So the notion that mm-hmm. we're learning the behaviors that go with the social behaviors about how to be part of a group, that's that's tricky. And that and that is but then the kid goes to school and they have to be part of a group. They're not they don't know what to do. So they act out, they have to share the teacher's attention with thirty other kids. So they're busy mm-hmm. squirming and fussing, the teacher goes over to their desk every time. And it's becoming, that's another reason why a lot of kids are going on medication, because in the school environment, the teachers might have up to 40 kids in a classroom, and they, they just can't and don't want to deal with it. Yeah, it's, a, it's you know, having, really, yeah. You can't, they're not equipped to take 40 kids who, if if 20 of them have problems of sharing and, and deferring to the leader, Teacher's the leader, and they have to defer to the mm-hmm. leader, and they're not being mm-hmm. socialized to do that. It's a difficult situation, any way you look at it. <laughs> to say the least. Huh? Yes, to say the least. Mm. So, what would you recommend parents do in terms of teaching their children self care? So uh, very early you want the child to learn to um, get into a routine 
that they can do like we do all the other routines we do. That that's how the only way you really remember to do anything is through routine. So the child has, learns well, when do when do you want to brush your teeth or how will you know it's time. So when the, when that show's over, is that the time you want to use to brush your teeth? So you want to train the child to start to do these actions that aren't based on I remind you. They're based on the child mm-hmm. learning to do it. After your pajamas on, you go into the bathroom. So they learn it like a like a robot, like it's just part of a sequence of actions. And you know if your routine's disrupted, you forget things you would have normally done all the time. Like even mm-hmm. put your seatbelt on if something happened before you, right in the middle of the sequence, then you may start the car and you didn't put your seatbelt on because you interrupted your routine. So mm-hmm. everybody's routine, and you, that's another thing in today's, day and age, how much family life has good routine to it anymore. Everybody's going all over the place. So you want to get the young True. kids to, into root, a, a sequence of routines. Or, as soon as they get out of bed, this is what they go to do, and this is what they do next after school. When, and then you get them to pay attention to the cues that they would use for themselves. When do you want to start your homework? And you get a, if it, you get the child to make the attribution that they, they're going to want to start the homework at a certain point, or uh, do you want to do it here, or do you want to do it there, or how do you want to go about that? Or uh, If you get the child to participate, it's like what they do in, in companies and industries. Industrial psychology says you get the worker more involved with the decision-making, they follow through better. That was It's really mm-hmm. applying the same techniques we use with industrial psychology to child-rearing, because everybody does better if they have a vote and their voice is heard. And it, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean the child controls everything. It just means it means you're considering them. It doesn't mean you're pleasing, you're over pleasing them or over accommodating to them. It's not nothing about that. It's about how to get the child to buy into these routines and see the advantages of them. And then you talk about gee, how white your teeth look or how great you look or boy, you match those clothes up so beautifully. You know colors wonderfully. Can you help me with what I'm doing or? You get the child in a position of competency rather than you didn't do that very well. I don't like the way you match those up. Well, let me go put. You have to wear this and this. This doesn't go together. So the child's then reacting to this notion of being a failure and criticized. Then they reject the, the what the parents saying because it's a, they associate with being diminished. So now the now the child mm-hmm. doesn't want to do it, but they, they, they don't want to do it because it has to do with the relationship that we have at the time. It's what's getting associated with the uh, the activity. So is that more or less getting your child to recognize the negative side effects of their behavior then? So if a child's doing ADHD, uh, there's pros and cons to ADHD. So when I say one of the principles is getting the child to recognize the side effects is this, well, so what will happen if you don't do your assignment tonight? Mm-hmm. What, what will happen with the teacher and, and how you want to handle that and... Uh, what would be so terrible if you did it, and what happens? Is there a reason why you're not doing it? And if you, and if you call out in class, what's going to happen to you? And do you, is there another way you want to handle it? And you get the child to recognize that that they think about it. These are the things that happen to me if I behave this way. Do I want those things to happen to me? The mm-hmm. child has to not want it to happen to them, because it's like trying to tell somebody not to smoke cigarettes. The, the person has to not want to make them so sick and it mm-hmm. has to be a, and it has to be important enough to give up whatever benefits the smoking gives them so there's benefits mm-hmm. to not doing your homework but on the other hand look what happens and it, the mm-hmm. the child may be saying no to the homework for a whole slew of reasons like they don't think they can do it well they they're mad at the parent for something else you have to kind of problem solve with your child to know what they're saying no to it may not be mm-hmm. just the homework No, I'm sure it could be a, uh, you know, they may have had a bad day at school. Yeah, they may be mad about something else. Now they don't want to do mm-hmm. anything anybody wants them to do because they're just mad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have we talked about the 10 guiding be- um, principles to um, reduce their their behavior? Yeah, we, though, you mean in, uh, as a... Um, let me see. Well, I know in your book you talk about ten guiding principles to reduce reducing the ADHD behavior. So okay, maybe we can so just I, recap what those are. Okay, that sounds fine. 
So the first principle is use coercion as a last resort. So the, the okay. issue is if if you can help solve a problem without forcing somebody, you'll probably get a better benefit than mm-hmm. with coercion because mm-hmm. they're more likely to do it when you're not around. Coercion works mm-hmm. well. It, it gets people immediately, and it solves the problem, but it, you don't get very good responses when um, the parent's not around. And even if you're doing positives, it's still a problem because it's a, you're controlling the resources so that your kid's only going to do it because you have access to the resources that you you can only have your cell phone if you do it. So mm-hmm. yeah, I'll, the kid's only going to do it to get the cell phone. Now they they have a studies that show that if if you start rewarding somebody for something they were already doing on their own, when you take mm-hmm. the reward away, they won't do what they were doing. They'll do it less often. And they were doing it fine before you started rewarding them. Because they start to do it with the idea that it's getting a reward. It loses its value without the reward. Hmm. So everybody's, Maybe it erodes the that? self-esteem a little bit? It may. It, Would that it, be it, it, it may. It, it, it certainly doesn't help self-esteem to control somebody. Because mm-hmm. it's presuming right. you're not going to... It's saying to you, you won't do it unless I do something extra to you. So what mm-hmm. is it saying about mm-hmm. you? Mm-hmm. So that's there's that interesting problem. So there's a whole language I try to get the parent to learn that is not lesser coercive. Uh, mm-hmm. I it's it's I expect you to do it versus I would hope that you would do it. I prefer you do it. Uh, you have to. You need to rather than I would like you to. It, it would be nice if you would. Uh, mm-hmm. These are ways to talk with people that have the notion of you're being invited versus you're being forced. And if I said to you, I got this ice cream, eat it, I want, you have to eat it, versus I got this ice cream, would you like a taste? Yeah, I ha- may have a different response to the second one than the first one. True. So this, there's very little, there's a lot of subtlety as to whether your child follows directions, which is the ADHD group doesn't follow directions. You say, well, why? And everybody says, well, it's ADHD, they have a mental medical problem. And I say, well, no, it has to do with these kinds of things has to do with mm-hmm. psychology. Mm-hmm. So the second principle is uh, stay calm. Now, they're talking about ADHD as a group of kids that have a, uh, what they call emotional uh, problems with emotional regulation so that it, they're, like, less able to control their emotions. So mm-hmm. so rather than look at it that way, I say, well, w- what would you do to, to help somebody learn to have calmer responses? So the first thing is for parents to model calm responses, because kids copy what they see, especially when it comes to anger. They copy the way mm-hmm. in which we're angry. So if you if you slam doors and bang things, the youngster's going to learn to copy that. And the other thing is you you help a child learn that just because they're screaming, they don't get their way more often. So if I can hear you better if you say it a little quieter, or we could solve this better once we're calm. There's things that a parent can do to not reinforce the uh, uh, high-intensity responses. But there's also the problem of that people react very intensely to things when problems keep occurring. It's called uh, emotional triggers. And sometimes mm-hmm. if your parent learns, why is your child overreacting now? Is it because they're frustrated with the sense of um, being uh, treated as if they're incompetent? or they're afraid we're pushing them into something that uh, they think is not going to be very good. That's the only way they've learned to um, get us to back off. You have to deal with what are the, what's the psychology of all these emotionally charged behaviors. Has yelling and screaming gotten them to control their world? And you want to, that's so it's a, there's a calmness in parenting that will help make a calmness for the child. Mm-hmm. And uh, like you were saying before, we're all rushing around uh how do you get to the point where it's easier to put the child's coat on than, than to patiently wait for the child to struggle and put their own coat on and to stay calm mm-hmm. when there's a problem so the child doesn't learn these frustrated responses when there's problems? Because things aren't always solved very easily. Things are difficult. Now, True. Might as well learn it when you're young. Yeah, you might as well learn, and that's when these kids learn it, because we all start off as babies screaming and yelling, and we have to learn over time 
to give those responses up and learn other ones. But this is a group of kids mm-hmm. behaving immaturely, 30% less maturely than the other kids. 30%, they, huh? 30, they, they think they're 30% behind in, in self-management, in all, the, all ways of self-managing, including these, all these responses. So you're trying to catch a kid up, and uh, that takes a lot of uh, social intervention, which we're not doing with, mm-hmm. this, with kids anymore. We're doing the the other treatment. We're doing coercion and medication. Hmm. Are there any statistics on how many ADHD children there are in the United States? Well, it's gone every year. When I started writing books, it was three to five percent, and the, by the time I wrote my parent book, it's now. Nine and a half percent, and in certain uh, socioeconomic uh, groups, it's uh, even double that. Some reports coming out with huge numbers of kids. So you get you get uh, to the point where you're thinking the a, a fifth of the population is defective. It's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Would you um, tell the listeners again the name of your book and where they can can purchase it? So it's called uh, Parenting Your Child with ADHD, A No-Nonsense Guide for Nurturing Self-Reliance and Cooperation. And uh, you can purchase it. All the Barnes & Noble stores across the country have a copy in stock. And you can go to any of the major booksellers on the Internet and uh, type in uh, my name, Craig Wiener, W-I-E-N-E-R, and you can type in the title of the book, and it will come up for sale on uh, uh, Amazon and all sorts of other uh, sites. And I have a website, uh, craigweiner.com, and you can see the books and some uh, other information about uh, ADHD. And uh, just look at the website, and that'll that'll you can click on the the, the buttons that say uh, where you can order the book from. Well, that's great. Now we covered two of your guiding principles to reduce ADHD behavior. Mm-hmm. So I can um, go. I don't know how much time we have, but I, uh, principle three is um, take steps to address and resolve problems. So the idea that just because you're considering your child more often and not just coercing them, it, it doesn't mean you're being permissive or lenient. It, if you notice there's a problem, you want to approach the child and talk with the child about the problem. It's like a a, a good relationship in a marriage. You, you want you know you want to go to your spouse and talk with them about things that are concerning you so you can solve it together. So the problem is that these behaviors take a quite a while to train out. Because think about all the habits we have and how difficult it is to for all of us to change. So the parent could say to the child, well, gee, we're having trouble sharing the computer. I don't get a chance to use it. Let's sit down and figure out a way to share it. It's not just sit there and suffer while your child monopolizes the computer. So you're, mm-hmm. you're you're actively looking at a problem and asking the child to participate in the solution, and you're helping them recognize the obstacles and the benefits to different solutions. So you're you're helping them learn to live in the world and learn what it means to manage. If you do all the managing, mm-hmm. they they won't learn to manage. Right. That's mm-hmm. the prem. That's the premise of the book is that you you're training your child to learn to manage, and you you can't be the one doing all the directing and reminding and and managing. And the the fourth principle is be patient because it takes lots of trials for people to learn new behaviors. If you put the if you put the forks in one side of the drawer and in one drawer and and the spoons in another, and, and you did it for five years, and then you switch drawers, you're going to take a few days to get used to where to go. It's just because mm-hmm. automatically you're going to go to the other place. So the, just because you talk to your child and try a, a reasonable intervention doesn't mean it's going to be solved right away. You have to revisit things over and over again and, and keep keep working at it and be patient and work at it. It takes tri- many trials. This is something that's true with anxiety responses and depression. It takes mm-hmm. time to figure out all the ways in which you're responding and how you can do it differently. And most of these kids, yeah. No, go ahead. Oh, most of these kids are so alienated from talking with the parent because talking is associated with a lecture that they say, mm-hmm. I don't know, and they withdraw and you can't engage them. So it, it takes a while to get them to feel safe that they can open up to you. 
And the book is about mm-hmm. ways in which you can talk to elicit uh, problem solving and get a kid to feel safe to say what they think and feel and what they want mm-hmm. without the notion that it's going to be a terrible thing. It's kind of like the old think tank stuff they used to do in, in industry where they free they get the people to feel comfortable that any idea is acceptable. Just start coming up with ideas so that you get <laughs> people to be less inhibited about being creative. Right. You want to help your child learn to relax and talk with you mm-hmm. uh, and, and not, not like, repress uh, things that are bothering them. Watch their facial expressions. You can tell that they're upset by something you said. They say, well, what did I just say that gave you trouble? Will you tell me? And so then they, right. otherwise they disengage and tune you out. And you wonder, well, they're distracted because of ADHD or they're distracted because because of what just happened. Hmm. That's the well, subtlety of it. Um, yeah. We've uh, run out of time. Oh, okay. Uh, listeners, you can get the the other seven guiding principles to reduce ADHD behavior from his book. Again, his book is called Parenting Your Child with ADHD. And uh, we want to thank Craig Weiner for being with us today. And um, listeners, please tune in again next week on Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have and follow her on Twitter at Health Media Now and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit Got Cancer? Now What? for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What? Listeners, I just want to remind you that the entire contents of this radio show are based upon the opinions of Denise Messenger and her guests. The information on this radio show is not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified health care professional, and it's not intended as medical advice. It is intended as sharing of knowledge and information from our guests and experience of Denise Messenger and her community. We encourage you to make your own health care decisions based upon your research and in partnership with a qualified health care professional of your choice. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. Thank you, and goodbye.